Hello and welcome to Big Ideas, a podcast from Texas State University in San Marcos, Texas. I'm your host, Dan Seed, from the University School of Journalism and Mass Communication. We're joined for this episode by poet Cyrus Cassells, a professor in the Department of English here at Texas State, a 2019 Guggenheim Fellow in the Creative Arts for Poetry, and a 2020 inductee to the Texas Institute of Letters. Mr. Cassells is also a winner of the National Poetry Series, a Lambda Literary Award, a Lannan Literary Award, the William Carlos Williams Award, and two Pushcart Prizes, in addition to being a finalist for the Balcones Prize and the NAACP Image Award. Cyrus, thanks for joining us. Great to be here. You're joining us from halfway across the world, across the country, from Hawaii, and we'll get into that here in a little bit because there's a reason that you're there and you're accomplishing um, some of your work while you're there as well, your next piece that you're doing. But I want to start with your background. What drew you to poetry as your life's work? How did you get to this point? Well, I always was aware from early childhood that I wanted to be a writer. And I just assumed that I would be a novelist. So the irony is that I didn't really write a novel until I was 16. I'm writing a second novel. So when I was about 16, I read Sylvia Plath's book, Ariel, and it was the first poetry that I had read that excited me and I thought was very powerful. So I started writing poetry of my own. And of course, it was very imitative because I was a teenager. My parents thought that poetry was something that depressed people because all the poets I was interested in were like Anne Sexton and Sylvia Plath had been suicide, so they thought it was a dangerous profession. And I had to move on to different, more upbeat subject matter before they're like, oh yeah, the poetry can be about all sorts of things. It's not just about, about existential crises or terror or depression or grief. All great subjects, of course, but not the only subjects. Yeah, not the only things. So as at 16 and you start to get into poetry and how do you evolve yourself as an artist to the point where there is a point where I'm sure it clicked like, oh, I'm a poet. That actually took me quite a long time. I've had a very freakish career in the sense that I never went to graduate school because I won the National Poetry Series when I was 23 years old. So what happened is with us, I ended up getting a degree. I studied acting at Stanford all four years, and I could have easily had a, a double major in drama, but I decided to get a degree in film and broadcasting because I'd always had an interest in the movies, right? So I was actually basically trained to be a film actor and a film person. And then all of a sudden, in the year after I got out of Stanford and I moved to San Francisco to begin teaching and working, I started writing a book of poems. And then Al Young, who was the judge for the National Poetry Series, called me up one day and he said, well, I hear you've, you've written a poetry book. And he said, can I see it? I said, well, it's not really done. He said, well, you think you can get it done? within three months or so. I said, yeah, sure, why not? So I did get it done, and I said, I didn't, it wasn't totally done, actually, but I <laughs> sent it off to him. And then about a month, oh, almost two months later, I saw him at a concert of a mutual friend where I said, well, you know, you know get ready, because I chose your book, right? So I got sort of tapped on the shoulder to become a poet, in, you know, publicly before I was actually ready. There's actually 12 years between my first book and second book. And it took me many years to accept that this was really going to be my vocation. I was still fairly keyed into the film stuff and the acting stuff here. 
Uh, but what it did allow me winning the National Poetry Series so early, and I think maybe I was the youngest winner ever in the history of their series, which began, I think, 79 or 80. It gave me a lot of freedom in my 20s to, tr to travel. I went to Spain. I started doing translation work. When my book was published in the National Poetry Series, I moved from California to Provincetown, Massachusetts on Cape Cod to accept the fellowship there at the Finite Work Center, which was organized by Stanley Kunitz and some other great writers. And our latest Nobel laureate, Louise Gluck, is from, was one of the first fellows in the Finance Work Center since Stanley Kunitz was her mentor at Columbia. So I thought to myself, if people are going to take me seriously as a poet, I should more actively pursue the poetry. So the first thing I applied for was the work center and I got in and it was a, it's a seven month residency there in Cape Cod. And that did a lot in terms of moving me forward. I also had wonderful teachers at Stanford, Alan Shapiro, who's, who's, a, who's a wonderful, wonderful poet. He's been a finalist for the Pulitzer Prize, the National Book Award, was one of my teachers. Linda Gregerson, who's also a super accomplished poet who teaches in Ann Arbor, University of Michigan, was my tutor. So even though I was doing the acting and doing the film, I, I won the Academy of American Poets Prize there at Stanford. And Jean LaRue, who just passed away recently, the fiction writer, sort of took me under his wing and said, oh yeah, we need to, we need to encourage Cyrus. Right? He and my other teachers connected me with Linda Gregerson and that was a great boon to have a tutor who's a graduate student who went on to become such an important, significant American poet there. So one of the things that happened to me in Provincetown is I met great poets. I had to introduce Dolly Cannell. I think I've never been more nervous in my life. And I got to sit at the table with some very, very significant writers. I actually had dinner with Galway Cannell, Bill Levine, Alan Dugan, and Marilyn Robinson, who just published her latest Gilead book. And for years, I was telling people how brilliant Marilyn Robinson was. It's just the most brilliant conversations I've ever met. So it took 25 years from about the time I met her to her sort of Pulitzer Prize-winning novel, Gilead. And then I was so pleased when she did a series of talks with Obama. I thought, that's it. She's like perfect person to do that there. So looking back at it now, it's amazing to me that I got a chance to sit at the table with these great poets. I also went to the Soviet Union, the former Soviet Union, with a group of writers. I went with uh, Edgar Doctorow and Frank Conroy, who used to run the, uh, the Iowa Writers Workshop. And I was the youngest person in that group. So for, they saw something in me. You know? <laughs> they come and let me hang out with them, right? Right. And I was going to say, all these luminaries that you're mentioning and the fact that there, it seems like there might have been some reluctance maybe on your part initially, right, to go this way. It, it's almost like you said, well, you were tapped on the shoulder. I, yeah, it was like the Cinderfella <laughs> dynamic, I call it, the Cinderfella. So I was tapped on the shoulder to be a poet, but what happened was, I think about halfway through my seven-month residency at the work center, I got writer's block and it lasted for a couple of years. And at the time, I was too embarrassed to let anyone know. I just sort of like kept it as my secret. And I sang a lot in my studio there in Provincetown because I come from a very musical family. Both my brothers are accomplished uh, singers and rock musicians. So, and then the other way I got out of, of, uh, of not being able to write was I started translating Catalan poetry in Spain. I got interested in that. 
I had this crazy notion that I was going to just move to Barcelona and live there. I just began researching the literature and I met David H. Rosenthal, who was the main translator of Catalan literature into English, and he introduced me to people. So I've been a Catalan translator off and on for all those years. <laughs> but did, did, did you feel pressure as such a young writer that had that had come into this? this oh yeah, I felt some. Fame? Yeah, I felt some pressure. But one of the things I realized was that my becoming a public poet coincided with my recognition that I wasn't so developed socially. I've been a straight A student, Stanford student. You know, I've been this sort of prodigy person, but I didn't think I was that developed socially, you know? Yeah. I was like, in other words, I was a school brain. Right, sure. And then suddenly I found myself in a different part of the country having different experiences. I didn't feel like I was a kid. I just felt like, oh, I have a lot to learn in other areas of my life. And I also learned that people didn't have to appreciate my poetry to know me or to like me or mm -hmm. participate with me, that it's sort of like an extra thing. I know when my first book came out, I wanted everybody to read it. It's like, oh, you're not going to understand what I'm really about unless you read my poetry. And now I'm like, eh, you know. There's you and your work, right? And so let's talk a little bit about your work. Reading up on your work, I've seen different reviews, different articles written, interviews with you where people have described your work as everything. And again, these are, these are quotes from articles. Your work has been described as spiritual, erotic, romantic, concerned with natural beauty, among other descriptions. How did you come to write poetry that, I don't want to say fits, but draws from these areas? Was it part of that natural progression and things that you just experienced and saw? Well, I grew up in the military, traveling a lot. You know, I was born in Delaware, but I don't even remember. I was born at the Dover Air Force Base, mm -hmm. which I didn't know until I was a grown man. It was actually the, the Atlantic Morgue. And then I lived in the Pacific Morgue, Travis. And it actually affected my childhood because I realized as I got older that there was all this grief going around in the mm -hmm. environment there at Travis. You know, the, the bodies were coming from the Vietnam War. And I didn't have any language to express that that was going on in the environment. I, ha I had this sort of vague sad sadness about Vietnam, and I couldn't understand because my father wasn't. My father wasn't in. Con he did tour duty at various points, but he wasn't in combat duty. So I kept thinking, where's this feeling coming from? And then, I think I was reading Philip Roth's *The Human Stain*, and I realized, oh, oh, you were there in that place of mourning and the place where the bodies came. That's that's why you have this sort of vague mm -hmm. sense of sadness and tragedy in connection to the war there. And I was still a kid. I, I was, I think I was in third grade. So my mother is from North Carolina. My father was from Detroit. So every summer, and I was raised mostly in the Mojave Desert. And every summer, my father would drive us in a blue station wagon, Dodge station wagon across the whole country to get to North Carolina, where I stayed with my grandparents. So I grew up with a lot of travel. We also lived in Seattle and of other places there. As an adult, I just began to travel. I traveled to Mexico when I was a teenager. I was there recently for the first time in Mexico City since I was 17 to do a little bit of teaching. And it's actually becoming a new project about Frida Kahlo because by chance I ended up staying next door to Frida Kahlo's Blue House. My mm. friend who's a British film director 
uh, her property used to be part of the Kahlo family property. So I found myself looking at Frida's garden for like five weeks this right. winter, right before the pandemic. It was January, early February. So now I'm fascinated about Frida Kahlo. I mean, she's always been an interesting artist, but now I have something, I feel like something's bubbling up to say what it was like to, to have her aura there because she's right. such a, was such an inspiring, unique, distinctive person. In fact, it's the most visited place in Mexico City now. Oh. And it was so, there access, accessible for me, right? And so what you're describing, is, it sounds like when some of us, we find something interesting, we crawl down the rabbit hole, right, of research or reading. And for you, it sounds like that rabbit hole pops to the surface in, in a creative yeah. That's definitely the way to describe it. And I think because I'm an actor, I just sort of embrace it and leap in. I don't think too much about it. So I'm actually going to be writing about Frida Kahlo's early life and her first relationship with her boyfriend, Alejandro. And he was the one who was with her when she had her horrible accident that completely changed her life. I really related to that stage of her life and did, a, you know, sort of fell into research about them. The stage before Diego. Mm -hmm. super famous muralist husband because Alejandro was also a fascinating man and became a great orator and a political activist there and was really responsible for sparking her interest in painting. She was actually studying to be a doctor when she was in a terrible accident that, that affected her life so much there. So yeah, I kind of fall into things. In terms of spirituality, uh, I've always been interested in that. My latest published book is a series of poems 12 poems that I wrote in a monastery, in Christ in a Desert Monastery, in northern New Mexico in Abiquiu, which is really famous as the home of uh, Georgia O'Keeffe, the great painter. And, and I was just bringing that up when you brought up Frida Kahlo, that you were staying next to her, her house, and here, your book, More Than Watchmen at Daybreak, you're near Georgia O'Keeffe's ranch, and you kind of put, it feels like you're, you get yourself in these places that have, you know, there's meaning to them, but there's also inspiration. True. You know, how I got to the monastery first was 10 years ago, I was staying in a and b in Santa Fe, and this woman said, asked me if I'd ever been to Christ in the Desert. I said, no, I don't know. And she said, oh, it's like the most, it's my favorite place in the world. It's the most beautiful spot. And she said, I want you to go. So she gave me a picnic basket and some food. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's 12 miles down an unpaved road to get to the monastery. So when you first go to the monastery, you think you're never going to get there because it's winding and just going around and around and around. And then you get there. I sort of fell in love with it, like a lot of people. Part of what's different about that area is it has these saffron, I call them saffron yellow. She calls them maples yellow. Cliffs like I've never seen anywhere else in the world. On the road to the monastery. And lots of beautiful red rock near Ghost Ranch, which is one of her places that she lived there. So I would go there over the years. I lived part-time in Santa Fe. And anytime I wanted to get lotion, I like the I like the lotion that the monks made. They make beer, <laughs> they made lotion. I thought it's time to go to get some more lotion from the monks. Little did I know that a friend of mine I hadn't seen for years, like in 2011, became part of the monastery. I, I, I didn't know he had returned to the religious life. They'd been a monk when he was younger, but when I met him, he's a lawyer in New York, very different world. I was going to say, that's quite a change. Oh, yeah. Well, he's he's also an immigration lawyer. So Father Benedict is the one who invited me there. Uh, he came to a reading of mine in his house and said, oh, I want you to come. And So I started coming periodically. He offered me a hermitage to stay and write in. 
And the first one was close to where the novices were. And then the, the, later on, I was given a beautiful big hermitage by the Chama River away from the monastery. So it was like a 15 minute walk to the monastery. So it was truly isolated. And it was the first time in my life where I was incommunicado. I couldn't, there's no phone, there's no internet. And it proved to be such a creative boon for me. When I arrived uh, Christmas of 2017, I, was, I thought I was taking a break from poetry because my book, The Gospel According to Wild Indigo, was coming out the next month. I thought, well, I'm just going to take a break from poetry. But something about being in the desert was so powerful for me that I've been writing every day ever since. I mean, mm -hmm. I just don't seem to be stopping. So it really did triggers a very powerful creative um, surge in me. And while I was there in the desert, I made the decision to start doing reviewing of films and TV, something I had done as an earlier journalist, but had given up when I started acting more seriously because I thought I wasn't supposed to critique my fellow actors. Right. And in the desert, I was like, I don't care. I have a passion for movies. And that was a huge success because I'd done some poetry reviews for the Washington Spectator. And I said, well, can I do a movie review? And can I do that? So, you know, I ended up getting nominated for the Pulitzer Prize for the review. So, and I've kind of put that aside for now while I'm working a novel. But that was like a wonderful thing. You know, I'm like a, you know, film critic is like a perfect job for me. Because I have a degree in film. Sure. I'm trained as an Ties actor. Back in. Well, I started acting when I was 12 years old. I was in a very serious youth theater. So people expected me to be an actor. I expected to be an actor. Right. You know, I had a lot of support even from my parents. People thought, oh, this is your gift, right? And I think it's still one of mine, but, you know, clearly writing is the main one. Right? I was going to say, I, th I think you've done pretty well with the writing, right? Well, and what you probably don't know is I did a lot of acting at Texas State. I played um, Frederick Douglass in a one-man show that Dr. Sandra Mayo created. And I toured area schools. This is back in 2005. And I belonged to the Shake, uh, Austin Shakespeare uh, in Austin, and you know, I did a lot of acting, mostly last decade. I did an August Wilson play, Jitney. I got nominated for some acting awards, so it really is my second sort of best thing. It's just that I don't, I don't have time for it right now. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you're very prolific with with your writing, of course. Yeah, yeah. In so, fact, last summer I completed three books at once. It's ridiculous, that, but true. That makes everybody that wants to sit down and write the great American novel very envious. Well, these are poetry, but oh, yeah, the novel, I'm working on that. Yeah. But so clearly, Cyrus, you're obviously a very creative individual, very creative person. To get uh, not meta, but to kind of look at things in our current current situation, and you're in Hawaii now, you, you had relayed that you were previously in Oregon. There there when the, um, the the fire outbreak had happened, and then you ended up going to Hawaii as a result of that. Mm -hmm. But in the times that we live in where everything is crazy and chaotic, as a creative person with many outlets, you're writing, you're acting, how important is that kind of creativity, that kind of expression now, in particular, in order to reach people with a message? And how do you see your, that, your work in that regard if you do? Well, when the pandemic began, I was on the Guggenheim Fellowship. I was in San Francisco doing research. I had development leave in the fall, and I 
was staying at the Helene Relative Foundation in Taos. I was back in New Mexico in the fall. So I look back at it now. And since San Francisco and Berkeley, we were the first cities sheltered in place. I wouldn't even know what it was, right? Mm -hmm. I was so lucky to have all of this travel going on before I had to shelter in place. And since San Francisco is the second densest city to New York City, it was intense to be sheltered there. I was sheltered there for four months. Oh, wow. Where my godson invited me to come to Oregon since he was beginning a job managing an oncology clinic about an hour outside of Portland. So I had a lot of physical freedom this summer until, you know, the fires came. And then the smoke was so intense for a couple of weeks that my family suggested that I evacuate because of my history of asthma living there. So in terms of the pandemic, I wrote a couple poems. I have a new book that's just gone to the typesetter. It's a very political book. It's not very much like my other books. It's kind of a record of this period in history, I guess. And it was spurred by the murder of my close friend and assistant's father in Houston in a Stand Your Ground incident where he was shot uh, coming out of a post office. And he was in a, I guess he had parked in a handicapped uh, parking space and this other man mm -hmm. had a scuffle with him and shot him. And he died eventually after a couple of weeks. And because of the Stand Your Ground law, he was you know, he didn't have to spend any real serious jail time. But eventually, the ground jury found him guilty because the forensic evidence was that he, there was no scuffle. He just shot Nathan's father through the mail. So this is something I sat on for a year. I thought, do I really want to say something? And then it happened to this other family in Florida that's a much better known case. And I thought, well, I think it's time to let people know that you were in the vicinity of this this Houston situation, at least having someone close to me go through it. Because at first they were like, there was no, there was no surveillance. So it was just, a, it seems like right. my father's been shot and we don't know what happened. And it was just a nightmare, such a nightmare. And I was actually overseas working again. And all I could do was ask a friend of mine who's a journalist at the Houston Chronicle to look into it. So they sent a reporter and did a beautiful story in the fall. This all happened at the end of May when his father was shot here. So this new book, The World, it's called The World That the Shooter Left Us, is about that incident and, and responding to that level of violence and critiquing the violence in our culture to a degree. And it's also a lot about the border crisis and the detention and the child detention. And it's a big book in four different parts, but they're I guess it's overtly political, but the reality is I wrote it last summer, not this past summer, but summer of 2019 in Spain and Italy. And it sounds like I wrote it this past summer, mm. responding to what was going on. So somehow, and I wrote it in two months. I don't understand how I could write so much poetry. I didn't use all the poems I wrote last summer. I wrote about 40 poems in two months on wow. top of the other two books that I completed. So somehow the three books allowed me to get out this very painful, challenging, quote, political poetry on top of everything. Unfortunately for me, my publisher said, we want both of them. So I got a double contract. But I could, right. again, I could never imagine that. Sure. Normally it takes me about three years to write a book of poems. So I have one book that took me two months. It's fiddling. <laughs> one that took me really more like nine months. And then the monastery book was longer in a couple of years or so of going here and writing and then 
figuring out what I wanted to say or express. Mostly it was about the beauty of the landscape and the sense of being among the monks. It's, I'm not a Catholic, so it was such a rare opportunity to live among the monks. So part of my thank you was just to give them poetry readings or help them with their poetry and to create the book as a right. thank you for them. Right? It was originally part of one of the other books. And I thought, no, 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 this needs to be its own book here. Your travel that you've brought back, I mean, you're mentioning all these places that you've gone, all these people that you've met. When you look back at all the places you've been, I'm not going to ask you what your favorite is, but you, you know. I do have a favorite, actually. Yeah, well, what, what is your favorite? You, Italy. Italy, okay. So, I lived in Italy for five years. It's still my favorite country. Italy's, okay. So this <laughs> idea of traveling the world and experiencing different places, environments, people, cultures, could you have ever in your wildest imagination growing up on an Air Force base and in California and ever imagined that you would have had these experiences? How has that changed you? You know what? I could because of my father and my Spanish teacher. Mm -hmm. They kind of prepared me to be this world traveler person. My Spanish teacher was my most impactful teacher in all of my education. And she was from Guadalajara and she was a big believer in culture. And with my dad, the older I got, I would start traveling more and I would talk about a certain place and he would tell me, oh yeah, I was there. I was in Udine in Northern Italy. I stayed for a week with him. Like my father was in the Congo, he was in Greenland, he was everywhere. Right. But I think by the time I was grown, he was really sort of tired of traveling. It was so much related to Air Force business or industry business. So he, but they were all over. The more I traveled, the more I would say, hey, have you been to, oh yeah, I've already been there. So. I think what's become clearer to me, my father's been dead for 21 years and my mother for about 14. As I come from a super distinguished African-American family, it's just sort of crazy. My family is just, someone said, sorry, it's your black blue blood. But my, <laughs> my uncle was the president, my uncle Bill was the president of the Tuskegee Airmen. Oh, wow. He went to college with Jackie Robinson. Wow. And his best friend was Nat King Cole. So I only found these things out at the funeral. On my mother's side, my uncle Claude was one of Dr. King's physicians. So my cousins grew up with Dr. King's children. Oh, wow. My cousin Claudia uh, was one of the first people that Coretta hired for the King Foundation. And on and on and on. You know, Jacqueline Woodson, who just got a MacArthur, is my cousin. Stedman Graham, Oprah's partner, is my cousin. So I know I'm one of these people, people can't quite figure out what I am, but actually I come from this super rad, incredible African-American family. That's absolutely incredible. Just, I mean, all the, the connection that you're making. My father, I found out when my father died in 1999 that he helped to desegregate West Point. He, this is like 1950 or 51, he and six other cadets, they were black cadets, they, they refused to room with each other. So they stood out their room, outside of their rooms for hours and finally, what, what they call it, the big brass relented there. Right. So that's that's my stock. And you know, that's that's a lot of trailblazing brave folks. <laughs> so I think it was in there. I just had to yeah. find out more. You know, I think what happens with a lot of families is that your parents try and keep you from the pain of the things that they went through. And since my parents came from that segregated world and I was like the first generation in the integrated world, they didn't 
I think they didn't want to burden me with some of the more painful episodes that they went through. Mm -hmm. But, you know, when your parents died, it's still kind of a puzzle. You're still putting together the pieces, right? So recently, you know, one of the things I do is I'm the chair of the LA Times Book Prize in Poetry. And once we had the ceremony, I went to a party at USC. This man came up to me, and I'm actually the third Cyrus. I'm like father with Sweeney. He said, oh, are you, are you related to Cyrus Cassell of Detroit? I said, yeah, that was my dad. He said, oh, your father was legendary. He was the smartest person ever in our school. And he went to West Point. And when we were growing up, everyone said, well, maybe you too could be like Cyrus Cassell. I thought, wow, okay. Wow. Yeah. It was very humbling because I thought I was smart on my own, but apparently it's partly genetic, maybe just a little bit, right? Yeah, a little bit. My father used to tease me and call me serious because I was such a bookworm. But what I figured out was that my father was in graduate school in um, Seattle, University of Washington. So he always had books around when I was just coming into consciousness. So mm -hmm. I think that's where I got it from. Because I was such a bookworm kid that, you know, the company would come over and I'd still have a nose in the book. Right. I would still be there. Right. Are you, why are you reading Dickens when Aunt so-and-so has come to call? I'm like, because it's so interesting. So um, my family is extraordinary. And my mother was all pretty literary, too. And went to Howard University, which is really like the premier black school in the country. And my relatives were Howard administrators. So I come from very trailblazing and educated stock we were expected to uh, <laughs> deliver right, yeah. both in my way i have right i, I think my I eccentric think, way i've delivered i think you have more than delivered and i think the message that you just talked about reading and being surrounded by literature and exploring the world and all that is so very important and i think personally i feel like a lot of us nowadays miss that because of the times that we live in the digital nature the solitary nature looking at screens constantly and, and well so. i think you can be a world citizen and never leave your house i think we're learning that here but yeah. i have to say that I'm, i've always been kind of an old soul person in a sense i had such a powerful sense of history mm -hmm. and i related to world history so much so i think that was also part of it too that allowed me permission to um travel I mean, that's why Rome is pretty much my favorite city, because I like those layers of civilization. Mm -hmm. Your current project that you're working on, tell us a little bit about it. I know that we talked beforehand, and it's a little different than the works that you've done yeah. previously. Well, as I said, I wanted to be a novelist from age eight or nine. So finally, a couple of years ago, I read a really big novel about a fictional Harlem Renaissance poet. And I haven't sold it yet, but Charles Johnson, a really amazing National Book Award winning novelist, took a big chunk of the novel, which is set in Freedom Summer in the, in the Civil Rights Movement, for the Chicago Quarterly Review. So I'm going to get hopefully more attention for that. Since childhood, I've been really fascinated with Father Damien and wanted to write something about Father Damien. So when it came time for me to do a proposal for my development leave, I decided to focus on Damien. And I've been trying for years, I've been coming to Hawaii for about 16 years, just on vacation, to get to Malakai, which was the site of the leper colony there on the north shore of Malakai. Never successful. Finally, I enlisted a friend of mine, and Father Damien was also his hero. So somehow going together seemed to make it happen. So I went on a tour, spring break of 2019, and just sort of took it in and and hopefully in a respectful way, and then began doing research about leprosy. 
The big shock is that apparently 90 to 95% of the world is immune to leprosy. So when this was going on in the 19th century, they had no idea. They just thought it was this incredibly contagious thing, mm -hmm. which may have been the case in terms of Hawaiian Islanders being susceptible to, quote, foreign diseases, because they were susceptible to all sorts of other things that were brought by the merchant ships there. So that lent a kind of poignance to what had happened there at Kalapaka. So Father Damien was a Belgian priest who arrived. He actually, his brother got sick and he decided to take over for his brother. And he was first on the big island and I asked him to come to Molokai. So he arrived in 1873. So he was one of the rare individuals who actually contracted leprosy and died. And he is now uh, a saint in the Catholic Church, as is the uh, Mother Marianne who followed him. They're both now saints in the Catholic Church. So I just have been pursuing that interest in him. So, so I took notes last year and then nothing really happened until this April when I was sequestered in San Francisco and then all these sort of characters arrived for me to consider. You know, it's a novel. It's mostly fiction. It's a tricky thing to, to use historical figures and then have the rest of them not be historical figures, mm -hmm. but that seems to be the case. So it centers around a young man whose father is a naval officer, whose mother dies when he's a kid, and he decides to become a Catholic priest and to go to Molokai. He's a very spiritual character, and a lot of people are fascinated by him because he's like the handsomest person ever. <laughs> it's, it's sort of an erotic comedy in that level, and everyone's mm -hmm. like falling in love with, with Father Elihu, right? When I was working on this project, and it's such a heavy project in terms of writing it during a pandemic about something akin to a pandemic, and the last parts of this new novel are set in a flu pandemic. So what I thought was a big multi-levered novel was actually becoming a trilogy where each pandemic gets its own focus. Mm -hmm. So what was happening in San Francisco, I was writing about the AIDS pandemic, and I was actually there as a young person. Like I tell my students, I think you're not the first group of 20-somethings to be around at the start of a pandemic, because that was true for me. I was right there in San Francisco. And my colleague, uh, I worked with a, uh, a publisher, was one of the first people publicly talking about his AIDS, AIDS diagnosis there. I remember walking down the street and hearing him talking about it on the stage and catching some things. Oh, that's why he wasn't in work, hasn't been in work lately, you know? So I really was right there at the start of the pandemic. And so I'm writing about that as well. And then I started to write a little bit about what was happening, you know, in the 20th century. So that novel has to do with what happened in Northern Italy and what was happening in San Francisco hmm. and links the characters from the other book. So I have this big project. And then the, the Hawaiian part just took off. I thought, you know, this is so juicy and good to me and interesting, these characters. The novel is called After an Emily Dickinson. It's called The Going of the Inland Soul to Sea. And I chose the title because Father Damien grew up in a, uh, his father was a coin merchant. So he was also a landlocked kid who ended up, you know, living in the Pacific. So it's about people who come to the Pacific, whether it's San Francisco or Hawaii. Right. And they're kind of spiritual journey with it. So, and it's in a different, it's very different from the other novel. This new novel is in the third person. The other novel has 10 different first person narrators. It's really, 
a huge complicated thing. It's really more like Cloud Atlas, which is why I'm having a hard time selling it. But I'm very excited because the, the new novel, The Going of the Endless Odyssey, it's just kind of flowed out of me. I think I'll have it done next year. Well, Cyrus, I want to thank you so much for joining sure. us. Great interview, very interesting. We look forward to your next work that, as you said, you're working on now. And again, thank you. And thanks to our audience again for listening. We'll be back with another episode of Big Ideas next month. Until then, stay healthy, stay safe, keep learning. Big Ideas TXST is a presentation of Texas State University and the Division of University Advancement. Subscribe to experience more innovative, thought-provoking content. If you like what you hear, consider leaving us a starred review, five if possible. The views expressed during this program are those of the individual participants and do not necessarily represent those of the university. Big Ideas is hosted by Daniel Seed, produced by Jamie Bloschke, with technical assistance provided by Manuel Garcia. Strategic consultant is Kelly Raz.